Section 21 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 of Plants. I think a designed and studied mechanism to be, in general, more evident in animals than in plants, and it is unnecessary to dwell upon a weaker argument where a stronger is at hand. There are, however, a few observations upon the vegetable kingdom which lie so directly in our way that it would be improper to pass by them without notice. The one great intention of nature in the structure of plants seems to be the perfecting of the seed, and, what is part of the same intention, the preserving of it until it be perfected. This intention shows itself, in the first place, by the care which appears to be taken to protect and ripen, by every advantage which can be given to them of situation in the plant, those parts which most immediately contribute to fructification viz. the anthery, the stamina, and the stigmata. These parts are usually lodged in the center, the recesses, or the labyrinths of the flower. During their tender and immature state are shut up in the stalk or sheltered in the bud. As soon as they have acquired firmness of texture sufficient to bear exposure, and are ready to perform the important office which is assigned to them, they are disclosed to the light and air by the bursting of the stem or the expansion of the petals after which they have, in many cases, by the very form of the flower during its blow, the light and warmth reflected upon them from the concave side of the cup. What is called also the sleep of plants is the leaves or petals disposing themselves in such a manner as to shelter the young stem, buds, or fruit. They turn up, or they fall down, according as this purpose renders either change of position requisite. In the growth of corn, whenever the plant begins to shoot, the two upper leaves of the stalk join together, embrace the ear, and protect it till the pulp has acquired a certain degree of consistency. In some water plants, the flowering and fecundation are carried on within the stem, which afterwards opens to let loose the impregnated seed. The pea, or papillionaceous tribe, enclose the parts of fructification within a beautiful folding of the internal blossom, sometimes called, from its shape, the boat or keel itself also protected under a penthouse formed by the external petals. This structure is very artificial, and what adds to the value of it, though it may diminish the curiosity, very general. It has also this further advantage, and it is an advantage strictly mechanical, that all the blossoms turn their backs to the wind whenever the gale blows strong enough to endanger the delicate parts upon which the seed depends. I have observed this a hundred times in a field of peas in blossom. It is an aptitude which results from the figure of the flower, and, as we have said, is strictly mechanical, as much so as the turning of a weatherboard or tin cap upon the top of a chimney. Of the poppy, and of many similar species of flowers, the head, while it is growing, hangs down, a rigid curvature in the upper part of the stem giving to it that position, and in that position it is impenetrable by rain or moisture. When the head has acquired its size, and is ready to open, the stalk erects itself for the purpose, as it should seem, of presenting the flower, and, with the flower, the instruments of fructification, to the genial influence of the sun's rays. This always struck me as a curious property, and specifically, as well as originally, provided for in the constitution of the plant. For, if the stem be only bent by the weight of the head, how comes it to straighten itself when the head is the heaviest? These instances show the attention of nature to this principal object, the safety and maturation of the parts upon which the seed depends. 
In trees, especially in those which are natives of colder climates, this point is taken up earlier. Many of these trees, observe in particular the ash and the horse chestnut, produce the embryos of the leaves and flowers in one year, and bring them to perfection the following. There is a winter, therefore, to be gotten over. Now, what we are to remark is how nature has prepared for the trials and severities of that season. These tender embryos are, in the first place, wrapped up with a compactness which no art can imitate, in which state they compose what we call the bud. This is not all. The bud itself is enclosed in scales, which scales are formed from the remains of past leaves and the rudiments of future ones. Neither is this the whole. In the coldest climates, a third preservative is added, by the bud having a coat of gum or rosin, which, being congealed, resists the strongest frosts. On the approach of warm weather, this gum is softened, and ceases to be a hindrance to the expansion of the leaves and flowers. All this care is part of that system of provisions which has for its object and consummation the production and perfecting of the seeds. The seeds themselves are packed up in a capsule, a vessel composed of coats which, compared with the rest of the flower, are strong and tough. From this vessel projects a tube, through which tube the farina, or some subtle fecundating effluvium that issues from it, is admitted to the seed. And here also occurs a mechanical variety, accommodated to the different circumstances under which the same purpose is to be accomplished. In flowers which are erect, the pistil is shorter than the stamina, and the pollen, shed from the anthery into the cup of the flower, is caught in its descent by the head of the pistil, called the stigma. But how is this managed when the flowers hang down, as does the crown imperial, for instance, and in which position the farina, in its fall, would be carried from the stigma and not towards it? The relative strength of the parts is now inverted. The pistil in these flowers is usually longer, instead of shorter, than the stamina, that its protruding summit may receive the pollen as it drops to the ground. In some cases, as in the nigella, where the shafts of the pistils or styles are disproportionably long, they bend down their extremities upon the anthery that the necessary approximation may be effected. But, to pursue this great work in its progress, the impregnation to which all this machinery relates being completed, the other parts of the flower fade and drop off, whilst the gravid seed vessel, on the contrary, proceeds to increase its bulk, always to a great, and in some species, in the gourd, for example, and melon, to a surprising comparative size, assuming in different plants an incalculable variety of forms, but all evidently conducing to the security of the seed. By virtue of this process, so necessary but so diversified, we have the seed, at length, in stone fruits and nuts, encased in a strong shell, the shell itself enclosed in a pulp or husk, by which the seed within it is or hath been fed, or more generally, as in grapes, oranges, and the numerous kinds of berries, plunged overhead in a glutinous syrup contained within a skin or bladder, at other times, as in apples and pears, embedded in the heart of a firm fleshy substance, or, as in strawberries, pricked into the surface of a soft pulp. These and many more varieties exist in what we call fruits. Footnote. From the confirmation of fruits alone, one might be led, even without experience, to suppose that part of this provision was destined for the utilities of animals. As limited to the plant, the provision itself seems to go beyond its object. The flesh of an apple, the pulp of an orange, the meat of a plum, the fatness of the olive, 
appear to be more than sufficient for the nourishing of the seed or kernel. The event shows that this redundancy, if it be one, ministers to the support and gratification of animal natures, and when we observe a provision to be more than sufficient for one purpose, yet wanted for another purpose, it is not unfair to conclude that both purposes were contemplated together. It favors this view of the subject to remark that fruits are not, which they might have been, ready altogether, but that they ripen in succession throughout a great part of the year, some in summer, some in autumn, that some require the slow maturation of the winter and supply the spring, also that the coldest fruits grow in the hottest places. Cucumbers, pineapples, melons are the natural produce of warm climates, and contribute greatly, by their coolness, to the refreshment of the inhabitants of those countries. I will add to this note the following observation communicated to me by Mr. Brinkley. Quote, the eatable part of the cherry or peach first serves the purposes of perfecting the seed or kernel by means of vessels passing through the stone and which are very visible in a peach stone. After the kernel is perfected, the stone becomes hard and the vessels cease their functions. But the substance surrounding the stone is not then thrown away as useless. That which was before only an instrument for perfecting the kernel now receives and retains to itself the whole of the sun's influence and thereby becomes a grateful food to man. Also, what an evident mark of design is the stone protecting the kernel. The intervention of the stone prevents the second use from interfering with the first. Close quote. End of footnote. In pulse and grain and grasses, in trees and shrubs and flowers, the variety of the seed vessels is incomputable. We have the seeds, as in the pea tribe, regularly disposed in parchment pods which, though soft and membranous, completely exclude the wet even in the heaviest rains. The pod also not seldom, as in the bean, lined with a fine down. At other times, as in the senna, distended like a blown bladder. Or we have the seed enveloped in wool, as in the cotton plant, lodged, as in pines, between the hard and compact scales of a cone, or barricadoed, as in the artichoke and thistle, with spikes and prickles. In mushrooms, placed under a penthouse. In ferns, within slits in the back part of the leaf. Or, which is the most general organization of all, we find them covered by strong, close tunicles, and attached to the stem according to an order appropriated to each plant, as is seen in the several kinds of grains and of grasses. In which enumeration, what we have first to notice is, unity of purpose under variety of expedients. Nothing can be more single than the design, more diversified than the means. Pellicles, shells, pulps, pods, husks, skins, scales armed with thorns, are all employed in prosecuting the same intention. Secondly, we may observe that, in all these cases, the purpose is fulfilled within a just and limited degree. We can perceive that, if the seeds of plants were more strongly guarded than they are, their greater security would interfere with other uses. Many species of animals would suffer, and many perish, if they could not obtain access to them. The plant would overrun the soil, or the seed be wasted for want of room to sow itself. It is sometimes as necessary to destroy particular species of plants as it is at other times to encourage their growth. Here, as in many cases, a balance is to be maintained between opposite uses. The provisions for the preservation of seeds appear to be directed chiefly against the inconstancy of the elements or the sweeping destruction of inclement seasons. The depredation of animals and the injuries of accidental violence 
are allowed for in the abundance of the increase. The result is that out of the many thousand different plants which cover the earth, not a single species, perhaps, has been lost since the creation. When nature has perfected her seeds, her next care is to disperse them. The seed cannot answer its purpose while it remains confined in the capsule. After the seeds, therefore, are ripened, the pericarpium opens to let them out, and the opening is not like an accidental bursting, but, for the most part, is according to a certain rule in each plant. What I have always thought very extraordinary, nuts and shells, which we can hardly crack with our teeth, divide and make way for the little tender sprout which proceeds from the kernel. Handling the nut, I could hardly conceive how the plantule was ever to get out of it. There are cases, it is said, in which the seed vessel, by an elastic jerk at the moment of its explosion, casts the seeds to a distance. We all, however, know that many seeds, those of most composite flowers, as of the thistle, dandelion, etc., are endowed with what are not improperly called wings, that is, downy appendages by which they are enabled to float in the air and are carried oftentimes by the wind to great distances from the plant which produces them. It is the swelling also of this downy tuft within the seed vessel that seems to overcome the resistance of its coats and to open a passage for the seed to escape. But the constitution of seeds is still more admirable than either their preservation or their dispersion. In the body of the seed of every species of plant, or nearly of every one, provision is made for two grand purposes. First, for the safety of the germ. Secondly, for the temporary support of the future plant. The sprout, as folded up in the seed, is delicate and brittle beyond any other substance. It cannot be touched without being broken. Yet, in beans, peas, grass seeds, grain, fruits, it is so fenced on all sides, so shut up and protected, that whilst the seed itself is rudely handled, tossed into sacks, shoveled into heaps, the sacred particle, the miniature plant, remains unhurt. It is wonderful also how long many kinds of seeds, by the help of their integuments, and perhaps of their oils, stand out against decay. A grain of mustard seed has been known to lie in the earth for a hundred years, and as soon as it had acquired a favorable situation, to shoot as vigorously as if just gathered from the plant. Then, as to the second point, the temporary support of the future plant, the matter stands thus. In grain and pulse and kernels and pippins, the germ composes a very small part of the seed. The rest consists of a nutritious substance from which the sprout draws its aliment for some considerable time after it is put forth, viz., until the fibers shot out from the other end of the seed are able to imbibe juices from the earth in a sufficient quantity for its demand. It is owing to this constitution that we see seeds sprout, and the sprouts make a considerable progress without any earth at all. It is an economy also in which we remark a close analogy between the seeds of plants and the eggs of animals. The same point is provided for in the same manner in both. In the egg, the residence of the living principle, the cicatrix, forms a very minute part of the contents. The white, and the white only, is expended in the formation of the chicken. The yolk, very little altered or diminished, is wrapped up in the abdomen of the young bird when it quits the shell, and serves for its nourishment till it have learnt to pick its own food. This perfectly resembles the first nutrition of a plant. In the plant, as well as in the animal, the structure has every character of contrivance belonging to it. In both, it breaks the transition from prepared to unprepared element. In both, it is prospective and compensatory. 
In animals which suck, this intermediate nourishment is supplied by a different source. In all subjects, the most common observations are the best, when it is their truth and strength which have made them common. There are, of this sort, two concerning plants, which it falls within our plan to notice. The first relates to, what has already been touched upon, their germination. When a grain of corn is cast into the ground, this is the change which takes place. From one end of the grain issues a green sprout, from the other a number of white fibrous threads. How can this be explained? Why not sprouts from both ends? Why not fibrous threads from both ends? To what is the difference to be referred but to design? To the different uses which the parts are thereafter to serve? Uses which discover themselves in the sequel of the process. The sprout, or plumule, struggles into the air and becomes the plant, of which, from the first, it contained the rudiments. The fibers shoot into the earth, and thereby both fix the plant to the ground and collect nourishment from the soil for its support. Now, what is not a little remarkable, the parts issuing from the seed take their respective directions into whatever position the seed itself happens to be cast. If the seed be thrown into the wrongest possible position, that is, if the ends point in the ground the reverse of what they ought to do, everything nevertheless goes on right. The sprout, after being pushed down a little way, makes a bend and turns upwards. The fibers, on the contrary, after shooting at first upwards, turn down. Of this extraordinary vegetable fact, an account has lately been attempted to be given. Quote, the plumule, it is said, is stimulated by the air into action and elongates itself when it is thus most excited. The radical is stimulated by moisture and elongates itself when it is thus most excited. Whence one of these grows upward in quest of its adapted object and the other downward. Close quote. Were this account better verified by experiment than it is, it only shifts the contrivance. It does not disprove the contrivance, it only removes it a little further back. Who, to use our author's own language, adapted the objects? Who gave such a quality to these connate parts as to be susceptible of different stimulation, as to be excited each only by its own element, and precisely by that which the success of the vegetation requires? I say, which the success of the vegetation requires, for the toil of the husbandman would have been in vain, his laborious and expensive preparation of the ground in vain, if the event must, after all, depend upon the position in which the scattered seed was sown. Not one seed out of a hundred would fall in a right direction. Our second observation is upon a general property of climbing plants, which is strictly mechanical. In these plants, from each knot or joint, or, as botanists call it, axilla of the plant, issue, close to each other, two shoots, one bearing the flower and fruit, the other drawn out into a wire, a long, tapering spiral tendril that twists itself round anything which lies within its reach. Considering that in this class two purposes are to be provided for, and together, fructification and support, the fruitage of the plant and the sustentation of its stock, what means could be used more effectual, or, as I have said, more mechanical, than what this structure presents to our eyes. Why or how, without a view to this double purpose, do two shoots of such different and appropriate forms spring from the same joint from contiguous points of the same stalk? It never happens thus in robust plants or in trees. Quote, we see not, says Ray, so much as one tree or shrub or herb that hath a firm and strong stem, and that is able to mount up and stand alone without assistance, furnished with these tendrils. Close quote. 
make only so simple a comparison as that between a pea and a bean. Why does the pea put forth tendrils, the bean not? But because the stalk of the pea cannot support itself, the stalk of the bean can. We may add also, as a circumstance not to be overlooked, that in the pea tribe these clasps do not make their appearance till they are wanted, till the plant has grown to a height to stand in need of support. This word support suggests to us a reflection upon a property of grasses, of corn, and canes. The hollow stems of these classes of plants are set at certain intervals with joints. These joints are not found in the trunks of trees or in the solid stalks of plants. There may be other uses of these joints, but the fact is, and it appears to be at least one purpose designed by them, that they corroborate the stem, which by its length and hollowness would otherwise be too liable to break or bend. Grasses are nature's care. With these she clothes the earth. With these she sustains its inhabitants. Cattle feed upon their leaves, birds upon their smaller seeds, men upon the larger. For few readers need be told that the plants which produce our bread corn belong to this class. In those tribes which are more generally considered as grasses, their extraordinary means and powers of preservation and increase, their hardiness, their almost unconquerable disposition to spread, their faculties of reviviscence coincide with the intention of nature concerning them. They thrive under a treatment by which other plants are destroyed. The more their leaves are consumed, the more their roots increase. The more they are trampled upon, the thicker they grow. Many of the seemingly dry and dead leaves of grasses revive and renew their verdure in the spring. In lofty mountains, where the summer heats are not sufficient to ripen the seeds, grasses abound which are viviparous, and consequently able to propagate themselves without seed. It is an observation likewise which has often been made, that herbivorous animals attach themselves to the leaves of grasses, and, if at liberty in their pastures to range and choose, leave untouched the straws which support the flowers. The general properties of vegetable nature, or properties common to large portions of that kingdom, are almost all which the compass of our argument allows to bring forward. It is impossible to follow plants into their several species. We may be allowed, however, to single out three or four of these species as worthy of a particular notice, either by some singular mechanism, or by some peculiar provision, or by both. 1. In Dr. Darwin's Botanic Garden, 1. 395. Note, is the following account of the Vallisneria, as it hath been observed in the river Rhone. Quote, they have roots at the bottom of the Rhone. The flowers of the female plant float on the surface of the water, and are furnished with an elastic spiral stalk which extends or contracts as the water rises or falls. This rise or fall, from the torrents which flow into the river, often amounting to many feet in a few hours. The flowers of the male plant are produced under water, and, as soon as the fecundating farina is mature, they separate themselves from the plant, rise to the surface, and are wafted by the air or borne by the currents to the female flowers. Our attention in this narrative will be directed to two particulars. First, to the mechanism, the elastic spiral stalk, which lengthens or contracts itself according as the water rises or falls. Secondly, to the provision which is made for bringing the male flower, which is produced under water, to the female flower which floats upon the surface. 2. My second example I take from Withering's Arrangement, Volume 2, page 209, edition 3. Quote, the Cascuta europea is a parasitical plant. The seed opens and puts forth a little spiral body which does not seek the earth to take root, 
but climbs in a spiral direction from right to left up other plants from which by means of vessels it draws its nourishment the little spiral body proceeding from the seed is to be compared with the fibers which seeds send out in ordinary cases and the comparison ought to regard both the form of the threads and the direction they are straight this is spiral they shoot downwards this points upwards in the rule and in the exception we equally perceive design three a better known parasitical plant is the evergreen shrub called the mistletoe what we have to remark in it is a singular instance of compensation no art hath yet made these plants take root in the earth here therefore might seem to be a mortal defect in their constitution let us examine how this defect is made up to them the seeds are endued with an adhesive quality so tenacious that if they be rubbed upon the smooth bark of almost any tree they will stick to it and then what follows roots springing from these seeds insinuate their fibers into the woody substance of the tree and the event is that a mistletoe plant is produced the next winter of no other plant do the roots refuse to shoot in the ground of no other plant do the seeds possess this adhesive generative quality when applied to the bark of trees four another instance of the compensatory system is in the autumnal crocus or meadow saffron colsicum autumnale i have pitied this poor plant a thousand times its blossom rises out of the ground in the most forlorn condition possible without a sheath a fence a calyx or even a leaf to protect it and that not in the spring not to be visited by summer suns but under all the disadvantages of the declining year when we come however to look more closely into the structure of this plant we find that instead of its being neglected nature has gone out of her course to provide for its security and to make up to it for all its defects the seed vessel which in other plants is situated within the cup of the flower or just beneath it in this plant lies buried ten or twelve inches underground within the bulbous root the tube of the flower which is seldom more than a few tenths of an inch long in this plant extends down to the root the styles in all cases reach the seed vessel but it is in this by an elongation unknown to any other plant all these singularities contribute to one end Quote, as this plant blossoms late in the year and probably would not have time to ripen its seeds before the access of winter which would destroy them providence has contrived its structure such that this important office may be performed at a depth in the earth out of reach of the usual effects of frost that is to say in the autumn nothing is done above ground but the business of impregnation which is an affair between the anthery and the stigmata and is probably soon over the maturation of the impregnated seed which in other plants proceeds within a capsule exposed together with the rest of the flower to the open air is here carried on and during the whole winter within the heart as we may say of the earth that is out of the reach of the usual effects of frost but then a new difficulty presents itself seeds though perfected are known not to vegetate at this depth in the earth our seeds therefore though so safely lodged would after all be lost to the purpose for which all seeds are intended lest this should be the case quote, a second admirable provision is made to raise them above the surface when they are perfected and to sow them at a proper distance viz the germ grows up in the spring upon a fruit stalk accompanied with leaves the seeds now in common with those of other plants have the benefit of the summer and are sown upon the surface 
the order of vegetation externally is this the plant produces its flowers in september its leaves and fruits in the spring following five i gave the account of the dione muscipula an extraordinary american plant as some late authors have related it but whether we be yet enough acquainted with the plant to bring every part of this account to the test of repeated and familiar observation i am unable to say Quote, its leaves are jointed and furnished with two rows of strong prickles their surfaces covered with a number of minute glands which secrete a sweet liquor that allures the approach of flies when these parts are touched by the legs of flies the two lobes of the leaf instantly spring up the rows of prickles lock themselves fast together and squeeze the unwary animal to death quote. here under a new model we recognize the ancient plan of nature viz the relation of parts and provisions to one another to a common office and to the utility of the organized body to which they belong the attracting syrup the rows of strong prickles their position so as to interlock the joints of the leaves and what is more than the rest that singular irritability of their surfaces by which they close at a touch all bear a contributory part in producing an effect connected either with the defense or with the nutrition of the plant end of section twenty one